welcome back to Sad Girl Study Guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I'm sad. This is going to be the last episode in my little spring break series on various Charlottes in history whose stories somewhat intersected with public health in a variety of ways, mostly because my grad school classes are going to be resuming session next week, albeit remotely, and I thought it was good to return to my usual programming of slightly longer, more structurally thematic study guides. As a note, I do hope that everyone is continuing to do well and continuing to be as safe as possible and practice social distancing, staying at home, self-isolating, doing whatever it is that you need to do or can do to remain safe given the COVID-19 virus that is going around. The subject of today's study guide is Charlotte Perkins Gilman, the author of the classic high school short story, The Yellow Wallpaper. I do want to quickly give a content warning that I will be discussing suicide at the end of this episode, but when that bit but when that bit of content comes in to the episode, I'll make it really clear. So if that is something triggering for you, you can fast forward so you don't have to listen to it. Charlotte Perkin Gilman's study guide has some real questionable mental health practices, lots of interesting family connections, some tragic pro-eugenics beliefs, and of course, hideous wallpaper. Let's begin. Charlotte Perkins Gilman was born July 3rd 1860 in Hartford, Connecticut. She was the second and youngest of her parents' children. She had an older brother, Thomas. Her parents were Frederick Beecher Perkins and Mary Fitch Westcott Perkins. Her father was a member of the Beecher family who, by 1860, were well-known preachers, teachers, and abolitionists. Growing up, Charlotte would absolutely idolize several of her great aunts, including Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote a little novel called Uncle Tom's Cabin that definitely did not fire up anti-slavery sentiments in the North and definitely did not have an impact in the eventual American Civil War, as well as another great aunt, Catherine Stowe, who was a huge advocate for female education. Meanwhile, her mother's family, the Fitch family, were an extremely wealthy family from Rhode Island that was known for being extremely into nature conservation before caring about the environment was cool. Mary Fitch specifically was known for introducing ivy as a concept both in gardening and in interior design into the United States. Oh, and Frederick and Mary were technically second cousins, which makes their marriage questionable, but compared to the kings and queens I've been talking about in past episodes, second cousins basically are strangers when it comes to getting married. However, tragically for Charlotte and her mother, Frederick Beecher Perkins did not exactly live up to the family expectations. He abandoned Charlotte, her mother, and her older brother when she was only a baby. 
In fact, some sources said that Frederick ran out on the family when Mary Fitch Perkins was still pregnant with baby Charlotte. Either way, Charlotte doesn't really know her father growing up because he is going to be bouncing around various jobs in the publishing industry all across the country and will only occasionally send his family money, none of which is actually quite enough to live off of. As a result, Charlotte and her family will have to move from Connecticut to Rhode Island to stay with various members of her mother's family. This means that Charlotte is going to spend most of her childhood moving between different family members and living just on the edge of genteel poverty, especially after 1873 when Mary has had enough and officially divorces her ne'er-do-well husband and the Beecher family completely cuts them off because being abandoned by your husband while you have two young children is fine, but actually divorcing him because, as it turns out, he's kind of an ass is an absolute no-no. As a result of the family's precarious financial situation, Charlotte Perkins Goman will move about 19 times before she turns 18. As a side effect of said family circumstances, Charlotte isn't going to have much of a formal education growing up. She will attend seven different schools in four years and will stop attending school when she's 15. Another side effect of said precarious family circumstance will be a really rocky relationship with her mother. Charlotte's mother had seen that marrying the first man who catches your eye and shows you the least bit of affection maybe isn't the greatest life plan. And as a result, she really wants Charlotte to be tough and decides that the best way to toughen up her young daughter is to just not show her a ton of affection, something that is going to have quite the impact on young Charlotte. However, at the same time, the mother and daughter bond over their shared love of books and spend a lot of time reading together, especially popular novels such as works by Charles Dickens, Louisa May Alcott, George Eliot, etc., etc. A third and final important side effect of the lack of resources that Charlotte Perkin Gilman grows up with is that she's going to be fairly resourceful and creative from an early age. She starts getting into designing her own clothes, although she does refuse to wear corsets, which is quite the scandal in 1870s New England, and is going to just generally be really imaginative and want to pursue creative fields. By 1873, the family has settled down in Providence, Rhode Island, because by now, Charlotte's mother is divorced from Frederick. However, the time in Providence does not exactly start out smooth. Not only has the family lost most of the money coming in from the Beecher family, but Charlotte's older brother Thomas starts to suffer from a series of illnesses, including typhoid and scarlet fever, and will also somehow lose an eye during the family's stay in Rhode Island. 
During the time in Rhode Island, the family will also take part in a cooperative living experiment that is started by one of Charlotte's mother's friends, who claims to be a psychic, and said psychic keeps claiming that Charlotte is always thinking bad thoughts at her, which maybe... But also, Charlotte is a 13-year-old, and anyone who's ever been a preteen girl can attest to the fact that preteens aren't exactly the most upbeat and chipper of human beings. Charlotte is not exactly the world's hugest fan of said cooperative living experiment because, as it turns out, she's supposed to be the one to do all the chores and to be running the kitchen, and she quickly realizes that combining multiple households worth of domestic duties maybe isn't all that efficient. It's out of this time, living in this quasi-co-op model, that Charlotte begins to develop ideas around the double standards that women specifically face when it comes to housework that will continue throughout her life and have a huge influence on her later book. Despite the less-than-stellar start in Rhode Island, by 1878, Charlotte does manage to get into and start attending the Rhode Island School of Design. Remember, she had always had a knack for the creative. She will attend on and off through 1883, depending on how much money she was able to pull together, as well as taking various correspondence courses on the side in things like ancient history and Egyptian, and also getting into physical fitness and the temperance movement, because above all, Charlotte wants to improve both her mind and her body. In order to pay for both her full-time work at the Rhode Island School of Design and these various side courses, Charlotte makes money by designing and creating greeting cards, drawing for various advertisements, and giving drawing lessons. It's during Charlotte's time as an art student that her beloved older brother, Thomas, leaves home. He first goes to MIT, but very soon after beginning his time at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, he fails out. Clearly, someone wasn't as passionate a student as their little sister, and then Thomas will go off to Nevada and have a series of mishaps, but this podcast isn't quite the place for said mishaps. During her time at RISD, Charlotte begins a series of extremely close female friendships, and as a note, Charlotte is going to continue to have very, very close female friendships throughout her life. The main friendship during her RISD years is with one particular young woman, Martha Luther. It's unclear exactly what sort of relationship the two had and if it ever moved from the platonic to the physical, but when Martha announced that she was getting engaged to a local young man, Charlotte wrote in her diary that she was swearing off love, and in her autobiography, which was published post-death, Charlotte described her relationship with Martha as perfect happiness. In addition to this close relationship with Martha, Charlotte was also extremely close to the daughters of a bunch of leading Providence families. One of them, Carrie Hazard, would stay friends with Charlotte throughout both of their lives and would also end up being president of Wellesley as well as being a bit of a patron to Charlotte. 
In addition to the various women who Charlotte befriended, she did hang out with a few men. She wasn't a total misandrist, guys. Calm down. Although the two men she was the closest to were two of her cousins, Arthur Hale and George Gilman, who would be important in her life later on. In 1884, the year after she left RISD for good, Charlotte Perkins got married. Her husband was Charles Walter Stutson, an aspiring artist who she had met in 1882, only 10 days after she had found out that her close friend, Martha Luther, had gotten engaged. Charles was immediately smitten with Charlotte and asked her to marry him almost immediately, but she said no. For the next two years, the two would have some back and forth over if she should marry him, until finally she agreed and they got married. Even when she was unsure if she should marry Charles, she did acknowledge that he was extremely talented as an artist and was a genuinely kind man. Charlotte's decision to marry Charles was more than a bit of a disappointment, both to Charlotte herself, who felt personal guilt over getting married, and to her wider family, who felt like she was letting down the Beecher tradition of going out and doing something bigger to help improve the world, like so many of her great aunts had done, versus just simply getting married, which is what ordinary women did. This tension between doing something greater to help further the world and doing what ordinary women did by getting married was a tension that Charlotte would continue to struggle over. At the start of the marriage, Charlotte seemed content to be the ideal 1880s housewife. And when we talk about the ideal 1880s housewife, I do think it's really helpful to think about things like the early seasons of Mad Men or the first few episodes of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Women really were expected to stay at home, make beautiful meals for their husband. We're talking about a time when we had the public versus private sphere and women's place very much was in the private sphere. We're still a generation or two away from women being able to get the right to vote. We're still a generation or two away from women being even allowed to wear dresses that would show off as much as an ankle. The concept of women on a bike was scandalous because, gasp, you might see their feet. It was still questioned if women could do things like ride on trains because doing so might cause their internal organs to fall about although there were no such concerns for men. Basically, when Charlotte Perkins got married, there were a lot of questions about women's ability, and the consensus was women had none. And at the beginning, Charlotte was fine with that consensus. She taught herself how to cook, she got really into housework, being the perfect housewife, all of those beautiful Donna Reed stereotypes. However, those stereotypes wouldn't last all that long for our heroine. One year after getting married to Charles, Charlotte gave birth to her only child, a daughter named Catherine Beecher. After the birth, Charlotte fell into a pretty serious depression. 
nowadays, the mental issues that Charlotte was suffering from would be recognized as postpartum depression. However, back in the 1880s, doctors just didn't have a name for what Charlotte was suffering from, and it wasn't necessarily seen as something serious, especially since Charlotte had a reputation for being melancholy since childhood. But Charlotte wasn't getting better. In fact, she seemed to be getting worse. So at last, she and her husband decided that she should actually seek treatment for it. What a concept, seeking treatment for an illness you have, whether it is physical or mental. Eventually, Charlotte went to Philadelphia to get treated by a well-known doctor named Silas Weir Mitchell. And Dr. Mitchell diagnosed Charlotte with nervous prostration and decided that the best course of treatment was something called the rescuer, which literally meant just lying in bed for a month and doing absolutely nothing. Once the month was up, Charlotte seemed slightly better, so he sent her back to her home with Charles Stetson with a series of extremely strict instructions. Said instructions involved staying in bed, ideally with her daughter, as much as possible, spending an hour in bed, after each meal, and never writing, or painting, or really doing anything intellectual or interesting ever again in her life. I repeat, never doing anything intellectual ever again. Basically, Dr. Mitchell's plan for Charlotte was for her to just lie in bed and be a passive figure for the rest of her life. Shockingly, despite this super effective treatment, her depression soon returned, and she ended up having a full-on nervous breakdown. Given the utter failure of Dr. Mitchell's rescue, Charlotte made the very smart decision to leave her home and her husband to seek more treatment. In 1888, Charlotte moved to California with her daughter, separating from her husband. She first went to Oakland, where she stayed with a friend for a few months to regain some strength and improve her mental health before settling down in Pasadena. In Pasadena, she began to write fiction. And as we recall, picking up a pen was one of those things that Charlotte was not supposed to do, according to Dr. Mitchell. But as it turned out, writing fiction really helped Charlotte recover. Score one for common sense, zero points to Dr. Mitchell. Pretty soon, Charlotte was turning out poetry and plays, and she was getting her work published, specifically in different progressive magazines. And here is where we need to take a quick little break from Charlotte's life specifically and talk about some of the larger political and social movements that were going on in the United States at this point in history and that are going to have quite the impact on Charlotte's life. The major political and social movement that is going to inform Charlotte Perkins Gilman's work is progressivism. 
this is a very surface level overview. As always, progressivism was a reaction and criticism to the industrialization that was going on in the United States that started in the late 1880s, early 1890s, and continued through the 1900s, early 1910s. The main concern that the progressives had was that power was getting way too concentrated in the hands of a few powerful, extremely wealthy business interests, which was hurting American democracy. Gee, I wonder why that sounds so familiar in 2020. Many progressive reformers were very much based in urban centers and wanted to carry out urban reform to push out corruption in city, state, and national government and improve life for the non-wealthy. However, there was not a single movement or a single leader when it came to the progressive movement, as well as their sort of cousin movement, the populist movement, which we're not even going to touch in this episode, and there were many different types of progressivism. As the progressive movement is slowly starting to pick up, Charlotte is definitely getting involved. Like I said, she was publishing her work in different progressive magazines, and she is specifically going to be getting involved in social reform and the capital N nationalist movement, which is almost like a second cousin to the more mainstream progressive movement. So let's talk about the capital N nationalist movement, which is very different than like mainstream lowercase n nationalism, which is all about like being proud of where you come from and like uniting around your place of locale and being like USA, USA. That is not what capital N nationalism is about. Instead, this particular movement was based around a 1888 science fiction novel called Looking Backward by Edward Bellamy. And the goal of the capital N nationalist movement was to use socialist groups to nationalize, hence the name, all private property in the United States and to create cooperative living as the main mode of life in the United States. Charlotte loved this idea, despite her past not-so-great experience in communal living, and specifically decided that the best idea for the future of the United States was one where women, specifically mothers, got to leave the home and be equal to men in these communal living communities. And the fact that Charlotte was thinking in this way is huge because we're still about three decades away from women even having the right to vote. During this time, living in California, getting involved in these various social movements, slowly publishing bits of writing for various newspapers, Charlotte Perkins Gilman is going to publish what will be her most famous piece of writing in 1892, a short story called The Yellow Wallpaper in a magazine called The New England Magazine. So, what is The Yellow Wallpaper about? And I'm going to give some slight spoilers, actually incredible spoilers, because I'm going to be giving away the ending. So, if you never read The Yellow Wallpaper in high school or college or in, like, 
a famous American short stories class or in like intro to feminist literature class, number one, I'm sorry, it's a great short story. Number two, it's widely available online. You should pause this episode and read it. It'll take you less than half an hour. Number three, maybe skip ahead two minutes so you don't get the ending spoiled. Okay, cool. Basically, the yellow wallpaper tells the story of a young woman who is sent to a summer house to take the rescuer after giving birth and suffering from postpartum depression and whose husband doesn't really believe that she's sick. As time goes by, the woman's mental stability starts to decline and she becomes obsessed with the wallpaper in her room. And by the end of the story, she has essentially descended into madness from her untreated postpartum depression and has attacked her husband who doesn't believe that anything is wrong with her, but in the process has sort of freed herself from the constraints of the patriarchy. That's the story. So hopefully you skipped ahead and didn't get any spoilers or you paused, like I said, and read it because it's super good. Later on, years later, Charlotte said that she had written the story specifically as a criticism of the treatment she had gotten from Dr. Mitchell and had even sent him a personalized copy, but he never replied back to her. When the Yellow Wallpaper was first published in 1892, it didn't get great reviews, but now it's considered to be a classic short story as well as like a classic piece of 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 feminist writing. The next year, in 1893, Charlotte published her first full-length book, which was a poetry collection. The year after that, Charlotte officially gets a divorce from Charles. The two have been living apart since 1888, but now it's legal they're separated. And once again, I want to emphasize how groundbreaking Charlotte is by getting a divorce. At the time, it's something like 10,000 women a year are getting a divorce, and that's, like, not a lot of people. There are many, 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 many colleges in the United States that have a population of 10,000 people. There are many colleges whose population is double, triple, four times that. Heck, the university where I'm getting my degree from right now has a population of about 15,000 students, and it doesn't feel that big. So that's how rare divorce is in the United States. On top of that, most people getting divorces are getting divorces because of reasons around infertility. And Charlotte's doing it because she and her husband just aren't working anymore, just to emphasize how modern and out of the ordinary Charlotte Perkins Gilman was for her time. After the divorce is legalized, Charles quickly gets remarried to Grace Ellery Channing, who actually was one of Charlotte's really close friends. Despite the fact that her husband has gotten remarried and the two, like, hadn't really worked as a couple, Charlotte is going to stay very friendly with both Charles and his second wife, which is a choice good for her. Despite the ending of the relationship, as well as societal expectations that their daughter Catherine would stay with Charlotte, she ends up sending Catherine to live with her father, which is going to cause a pretty big falling out between the mother and daughter. 
Later on in life, Catherine says that she felt like her mother abandoned her, whereas Charlotte said that she sent Catherine to live with Charles because she wanted her daughter to have a really good relationship with her father. And remember, Charlotte and her father did not have any relationship whatsoever. Once Charlotte is divorced, her writing is really going to take off. And around this time, she's also going to become a well-known public speaker due to lectures she's going to give on the nationalist movement, as well as general social and economic reforms. In 1898, Charlotte published Women in Economics, which is her most famous piece of nonfiction. In it, she argued that the only way for women to get true social independence and equality is for them to get economic independence and equality. And this idea of the need for women to achieve economic independence and equality still continues to pay, play a huge role in modern feminism. Think of issues that women are still grappling with, such as paid leave and the gender pay gap. Once again, we can see Charlotte Perkins Gilman really setting the bar and really thinking ahead of her time. Two years after publishing Women in Economics, Charlotte Perkins gets remarried in 1900. Her second husband is her first cousin, which, as always, is a choice, George Hofton Gilman, which means she's finally Charlotte Perkins Gilman, even even though I've been calling her that all along, for consistency's sake. As it turns out, unlike her first husband, George Gilman is extremely supportive of her writing work, and after the marriage, in order to sort of consolidate her writing work, the two move back to the East Coast, and they will mostly live between New York and Norwich, Connecticut. Even though Charlotte loved California, New York was the center of the publishing world, so living there made more sense. In 1909, Charlotte started her own magazine, The Forerunner, and she was going to be the main writer and editor for The Forerunner and use it to publish most of her writing. She would run the magazine for over two decades. It had over 80 issues and about 1,500 subscribers, which isn't too shabby given that she was doing all the work for The Forerunner herself. I can barely handle writing something for like two weeks, let alone two decades. Like the thought boggles the mind. However, when we start approaching the 1910s and 1920s, we start to see a not so pretty aspect of Charlotte Perkin Gilman's life, racism and eugenics. As it turns out, like most people in the early 20th century, Charlotte Perkin Gilman was extremely racist, specifically extremely xenophobic, especially in regards to immigrants. Given that she had been living in Southern California for a large chunk of her life, most of the immigrants she would have been interacting with were either Hispanic or from East Asia, which adds an even grosser level of straight-up racism to her xenophobia. She also got really into eugenics as a concept, which was really taking off steam in the 1910s. Tragically, a lot of other famous progressives 
such as Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, thought that eugenics was a genius, scientifically sound idea. Given that Charlotte Perkins Gilman really loved scientific improvement and wanted women to control if they could give birth, it does make some level of sense that she would support an idea that certain populations have certain traits based on their ethnicity and those ethnicity-based traits should either be encouraged or brought out to get rid of poverty or improve society. And I want to make it really clear, while it makes sense that Charlotte Perkins Gilman approved of eugenics, it is not in any way excuse her her support of it. Eugenics as a concept is racist, fundamentally flawed, and terrible. No one should support it. Charlotte Perkins Gilman also pushed eugenics as a way to prevent the spread of sexually transmitted diseases and unwanted pregnancy, which also isn't great, especially if the way she wanted to carry out this plans involved involuntary sterilization, which it usually did in the 1910s, in 1920s, and even through the 1960s and 1970s in some states. If you want to get your tubes tied, etc., etc., go for it. But if you're a government program tying people's tubes or involuntarily sterilizing them or sterilizing them without their consent, no, absolutely not. That is a line that shouldn't even need to be defined, and yet, here we are. So yeah, when it comes to eugenics, Charlotte Perkins Gilman, I'm sorry, you're canceled. However, on a slighter bright side, Charlotte Perkins Gilman did oppose literacy tests when it came to registering people to vote, and said literacy tests did tend to be race-based and were attempts to keep African-Americans from voting, so it's good that she was opposed to literacy tests. However, her opposition was not because they would keep African-Americans from voting, but because they might keep women from voting, and she was a big fan of women's suffrage. So, kind of a boo, but kind of a yay. As always, we are seeing that no one in history is perfect. In 1922, Charlotte and George left New York City for good and moved up to Norwich, Connecticut. They would live there until George Gilman died. A few years later, Charlotte began writing an autobiography. She finished it in 1925, but it would not be published until after her death. I read chunks of her autobiography. It is amusing, but she makes a lot of claims in her autobiography, like that she's distantly related to Queen Victoria and was really academically advanced as a child. So it's enjoyable to read, but take it with a massive grain of salt. In 1932, Charlotte Perkins Gilman found out that she had breast cancer, and from there on out, her life definitely started to decline. Two years later, in 1934, her husband died, and by the time of his death, it was really clear that Charlotte's breast cancer was inoperable. After George died, Charlotte moved back to Pasadena, where her daughter Catherine was now living. The two had a bit of a reconciliation. Charlotte moved to a house that was close to her daughter's house, but still far enough away that Charlotte wouldn't be a burden on her. 
And now I want to make a note that for any listeners who might be triggered by thoughts of suicide, you may want to skip ahead about 30 seconds or so. On August 17th, 1935, Charlotte Perkins Gilman deliberately took her life via a chloroform overdose slash by covering her face with a chloroform-soaked rag. She was 75 years old, and she died in Pasadena, California. At the time of her death, Charlotte made it very clear that she wanted to die on her own terms and had been a long-term advocate for assisted suicide for the terminally ill. Before her death, she wrote that she had, quote, chosen chloroform over cancer. After her death, Charlotte's influence continued. She was named the sixth most influential woman in, a 20th, in the 20th century in a 1993 poll, and she was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame in 1994. Outside of her best-known piece, The Yellow Wallpaper, Char- Charlotte Perkins Goldman was a prolific writer of both fiction and nonfiction. Her fiction tended to be more utopian and painted a picture of a world where women were truly equal to men and were able to do things besides just get married. A picture that was groundbreaking and revolutionary in the time that she was writing. Her two most famous pieces of fiction were Herland and its sequel with her in Herland. Her nonfiction was very focused on discussing how to make men and women equal in society with a focus on what structural changes, shout out Elizabeth Warren, needed to be taken in order to achieve economic equality. Some of her most famous nonfiction works include Women in Economics, Concerning Children, and The Home, Its Work and Influence. However, outside of the Yellow War, however, outside of the Yellow Wallpaper, Charlotte Perkins Gilman isn't really known for her writing today. She was very much overshadowed by some of her other contemporary fiction writers, such as Edith Wharton, because Charlotte Perkins Gilman wasn't quite as focused on things like prose and character, especially in her fiction writing, and was more focused on furthering her political ideals in her writing. However, despite this overshadowing, the idea she put forth both in her fiction and nonfiction writing has continued to, in my opinion at least, really inspire the feminist movement. So, for those fans of the study guide who prefer bullet points to a full-on lecture, let's do a quick recap of the life of Charlotte Perkins Gilman. Charlotte Perkins Gilman was born Charlotte Perkins in July 1860 in Connecticut. Both of her parents were extremely well-connected. Her mother, Mary Fitch Perkins, came from a wealthy Rhode Island family that was super into nature, while her father, Frederick Beecher Perkins, was a member of the famous socially reforming Beecher family. However, her father abandoned the family either right before Charlotte was born or when she was only a baby, and as a result, Charlotte Her older brother and her mother had to bounce between various relatives' homes for most of her childhood before settling down in Rhode Island when Charlotte was about 13 years old. Growing up, Charlotte developed a love of reading, a tense relationship with her mother, and a real creative instinct. After a brief failed stint in cooperative living, Charlotte 
attended the Rhode Island School of Design on and off for five years. During her time at RISD, she developed extremely close female friendships, befriended two of her male cousins, one of whom she would later marry, and then, in 1884, she married another guy, not her cousin, Charles Stetson. At the beginning of her marriage, Charlotte wanted to fit in to the mold of domesticity that was expected in polite New England society. She taught herself how to cook. She was the perfect housewife. But then, in 1885, when she was 25 years old, Charlotte gave birth to a daughter and began suffering from some pretty serious postpartum depression. Given that we were in the 1880s, no one really took her postpartum depression that seriously, and it got worse and worse. Finally, Charlotte went to a Dr. Mitchell in Philadelphia who put Charlotte on the rest cure in order to treat said postpartum depression. As it turned out, the rest cure meant lying in bed, doing absolutely nothing for the rest of Charlotte's life, which shockingly didn't help matters much. Charlotte ended up having a nervous breakdown and decided that she should maybe leave home and her husband in order to seek better treatment. In 1888, Charlotte took her daughter and moved to California and started writing, which was aggressively against Dr. Mitchell's orders. But as it turned out, that was exactly what Charlotte needed. She started writing poems and plays, getting them published in various magazines, and getting involved in various social reform movements, such as the Progressive Movement and the Capital and Nationalist Movement. In 1892, she published her most famous piece of writing, the creepy and excellent short story, The Yellow Wallpaper, which nowadays is considered to be a feminist classic, and two years after that, in 1894, Charlotte and Charles scandalized polite society by officially getting divorced. Charlotte continued writing, she began a career on the lecture circuit, got more and more famous. In 1900, Charlotte remarried, this time to her first cousin, George Gilman, who was extremely supportive of Charlotte and her career. A few years after that, she started her own magazine, which would run for about 20 years. Things took a bit of a downturn in Charlotte's reputation, by which I mean she got way into racism and eugenics, but hey, it was the progressive era. Anyone who was anyone was going to be all up in the eugenics game, but still. Bad news. Don't support eugenics, kids. In the 1920s, Charlotte continued writing, this time working on an autobiography, and being madly in love with her husband, George. The 1930s were not a great time for Charlotte. She found out she had breast cancer, George died, and a year after George, on August 17, 1935, when she was 75 years old, Charlotte took her own life via a deliberate chloroform overdose rather than dying of inoperable breast cancer. After her death, her legacy via her work The Yellow Wallpaper and the ideas around female independence via economic equality have lived on. While I do think it's really important to recognize some of the more problematic aspects of Charlotte Perkins Gilman's legacy, specifically the eugenics, I do think she is an amazing 
part of the women's movement. The Yellow Wallpaper is one of my favorite short stories. Back when I was teaching high schoolers, I loved teaching it. It's such a fun, creepy, weird story. Every time they read the twist, seeing their eyes open, amazing. I think it's such a great story. I haven't really read any of her other fiction, but now I definitely want to. And I think her recognition of the fact that it's not just like social equality that women need to be independent and equal, but economic equality is so, so important. Last term, I was reading part of The Second Sex for a class, and at the end of the chapter on marriage, Simone de Beauvoir sort of has this throwaway about, like, oh, as soon as women, like, are having the same jobs and, like, are being paid the same, everything will get better. And it's like, that still hasn't happened. And reading Simone de Beauvoir saying that, I was like, yes, that's so groundbreaking in, like, 1950. But Charlotte Perkins Coleman said it first. So I do think she tends to be a little bit overlooked in terms of her non-yellow wallpaper work, but she is so important, and I can't emphasize enough how ahead of her time she was in terms of her personal life. She She's great. She's so interesting. For this episode, most of my research came from Kate Bollock's article, The Equivocal Legacy of Charlotte Perkins Gilman, from the New York Review of Books, Amy Gagnon's article, Charlotte Perkins Gilman, Mark Beekman's article on Charlotte Perkins Gilman, Cynthia Davis's book, Charlotte Perkins Gilman, a biography, and Charlotte Perkman Gilman's fascinating and fantastic autobiography, The Living of Charlotte Perkins Gilman, which, like I said, you do have to take with a massive grain of salt. Next week, I'm going to be returning to more normal thematic study guide series now that classes has resumed, and my newest series is going to be about the women of Louis XIV and Versailles, starting with his mother, Anne of Austria. I also just want to quickly thank people who've been living who've been leaving me reviews. Reading them has really warmed my heart during this time of quarantine and social distancing and self-isolation. I really want to shout out L.R. Horst. Your review like, really made me smile. It was so lovely. Thank you. As always, if you have questions, comments, or concerns, you can email the podcast at sadgirl studyguides at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the podcast, I know right now is a really difficult time for a lot of people due to the COVID-19 virus, so don't feel any pressure. But if you would like to, you can join the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash sadgirlstudyguides. We have a bunch of cool levels and bonuses, like getting an on-air shout-out or getting access to the every two-week tangent cast where I talk about a person, place, or thing that didn't quite fit in to a normal study guide. You can also chat with me on social media, which I would love given that quarantining is happening. There's the Twitter at SadGirlStudyPod and the Instagram at SadGirlStudy. And as always, the best way to help this podcast grow is tell a friend or subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify, and let me know how I'm doing. Leave a review or else I'll be sad. Thanks.